the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, tonight, uh, it's December. We're going to be talking about COVID and where are we in 2021. With us from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, Kevin Brennan. Kevin, thank you for joining us as always. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Well, COVID is still with us. We're going through the alphabet with variants. Uh, right now, it seems like here in the Cleveland area, or at least Ohio, the Delta variant is still much alive and with us. Uh, what's what's going on from a health department standpoint? Well, we're continuing to see an increase in cases. Uh, we're still seeing an increase in positivity rates. Uh, and according to uh, the press conference that was held yesterday by the Ohio Department of Health, uh, Dr. Vanderhoff indicated that hospitalizations are going up. Uh, what we see is actually uh, Northeast Ohio has the highest COVID hospitalization levels in the state currently. So things are, uh, unfortunately, Nick, going the wrong way at this time. What does that mean for individuals, uh, regardless of whether there are mandates or no mandates, just common public health medical sense? What should we be doing right now as individuals? Well, I think, you know, there are a couple things. Um, you know, we, we are still very much advocating for people to go out and seek the vaccine, um, making sure that you get your first series completed, meaning the first two doses. Uh, if you've already done that, we strongly encourage you to go out and get your booster dose because now it is available to everyone. Um, and the other thing is, as we move into the holiday season, we've just come off of Thanksgiving. Um, kids are going to get out of college here in the next week or two. Kids are going to be released from public school for vacation and people are going to gather for um, the holidays, Christmas and New Year. That means people are going to be getting together indoors. Uh, the weather is getting a little colder. So obviously activities outside are becoming limited. And at this time of year, regardless of COVID and pre-pandemic times, we would see increases in illness, uh, typically flu. So right now flu season is well underway. We are about six weeks into flu season. Uh, fortunately, we have not seen a rash of hospitalizations, nor have we seen any fatalities here in Cuyahoga County so far. But with this increase in COVID and the, and the things I just described, we are being very cautious. Uh, we're looking at, um, you know, potentially a rise in illness. We combine that with the, um, the hospitals becoming filled up largely with COVID patients. And this has a recipe to becoming a very difficult situation for us going forward. So, again, we encourage people to get the vaccine, get your flu shot, wear masks inside. Uh, if you're in a crowd, wear a mask. Uh, you know, we, we really we just want people to follow uh, hand washing, social distancing, just going back to all those prevention measures that you and I have been talking about for several months. Yeah, now, drawing the <laughs> distinction between people who are going to say within the next month contract COVID-19, uh, we have those who are vaccinated, those who are not vaccinated. With regard to what we're seeing through now, breakthrough uh, infections versus unvaccinated infections, 
What are we looking at? What's the ratio? Well, we're looking at, in terms of, if we talk about hospitalizations, um, one half of 1% of those hospitalized for COVID since the beginning of this year, and if you recall, vaccines became available in January of 2021, one half of 1% of those hospitalized for COVID were fully vaccinated. That means that 99.5% of those people who have been hospitalized uh, for COVID are unvaccinated. And then less than one half of 1% of those who have died from COVID since January 2021 were fully vaxxed, were fully vaccinated, I'm sorry. So it really paints, you know, a very clear picture. Um, you're really putting yourself at risk for hospitalization and potentially death uh, if you're not vaccinated. You know, what we see is typically, Nick, in terms of breakthrough cases, people who are vaccinated, by and large, they don't need to be hospitalized. Uh, a lot of them can ride out the, the symptoms if they even get any at home. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, what happens is in people with compromised immune systems, sometimes fully vaccinated people can contract COVID and they do end up in the hospital. But um, the percentage of people who, who pass away or have serious complications is very small, as I just described. So the vaccine is really the best protection that you have uh, in terms of you know, safeguarding yourself from ending up in the hospital or contracting serious illness from COVID. With regard to people who are fully vaccinated, and let's say people who are older, and they may have uh, additional medical problems, what are the medical problems that people should be concerned about to still be careful, even if they're vaccinated? Well, I think it's anything that, that we would classify as chronic illness, uh, which would be asthma, diabetes, cancer, uh, any sort of lung disease, heart disease. So any, anybody that's living with what their physicians term as a chronic illness, um, particularly those that are respiratory based. Um, so, you know, if, if, you've got a, if you've got an issue of that nature, uh, we want to make sure that you're especially careful. And we would encourage people who have those conditions if they have not gotten their booster shot uh, to, to consult with their physician to see if that's the right thing for them to do. Um, because, as you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak broadly, but just sound advice would be, uh, you know, if you're suffering with those conditions and you have not received either your two doses or your third dose, uh, your booster dose, we would highly recommend that you get in touch with your medical provider to discuss that. For people who are still very concerned and literally frightened about getting a vaccination, uh, what are some of the uh, side effects of the shots that you've seen, or at least the Board of Health? Well, Other than a sore arm from the inoculation. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll start there with the sore arm. Um, and other than that, um, you know, I can describe my experience. I, I, uh, I received the, um, the Moderna vaccine, so I've had my first two doses as well as my booster dose. Uh, about 24 hours after I got my second dose of Moderna, uh, I experienced a few body aches, some chills. Uh, I ended up going home. It was early evening. Uh, I had a little something to eat. I went to sleep for about eight or nine hours. I woke up, and I felt fine the next day. Um, after my booster dose, about 24 hours after I received it, I had the same experience. So from what I understand, you know, that's a clear indication that my body's immune system is working, uh, that it's, you know, trying to accommodate the, the additional dose of vaccine that's come in. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a very small... Uh, price to pay, if at all, uh, for the assurance and the confidence that, that I'm vaccinated and that, you know, I've joined the, uh, the what is it, 8.1 billion doses 
uh, have been given out globally of COVID-19 vaccine, and we've had 462 million of them delivered here in the United States. So the evidence is very strong. It's very sound that, you know, the vaccine is the way to go. I mean, this is a vaccine-preventable disease now. So I think we our mindset needs to be that we need to treat it as such. Does the Board of Health hear uh, questions or uh, concerns that people have who are not getting their uh, vaccinations? And are there explanations as to uh, how you can dispel myths or whatever the objections are to get people to get these uh, inoculations? Well, I, I think the one thing you and I have discussed previously is it's very difficult to counter fear with logic. You know, if somebody's really scared for whatever reason, uh, it's, you can throw all of the, the reasoning and the, and the sound advice and the logic at them, and it's still as difficult to break that emotional tie to the fear. What we can say is that, um, you know, <clears throat> as I just stated, it's very much been proven that the vaccine is effective. Uh, there are no um, there are there are no things such as you know there are no microchips in the vaccine. There's no tra- there are no tracking devices. Um, you know we don't we don't see this as anything really any different than uh, you know the other vaccines that we all received in childhood. I mean we've all gotten you know vaccines for polio and mumps and measles and rubella and on and on. And you know those are those are things that we've all conquered well as a society because we all got on board and we got those vaccines and when we do see cases of them uh, when they do occur it's very easily um, handled from a medical standpoint in terms of you know there are remedies to take care of it Uh, the one thing we want to make clear is that you know no vaccine is 100 percent foolproof thus we see things like breakthrough cases as we just discussed but it is the best um, the best defense that we can present against the illness so, um, you know, we really want to be be conveying to people that, uh, you know, it, it's important to protect people who cannot receive the vaccine as well. I think we have an obligation as in society to protect each other. And there are people for medical reasons who cannot receive the vaccine. And so we owe it to them as a society to protect them uh, by getting vaccinated and minimizing the transmission. You mentioned and I've run into a couple of people who, for medical reasons, are allergic to vaccines, and uh, they they don't get it. So you're right. They are vulnerable out there, not by their own choice, but by their medical condition, uh, which is something. The vaccinations are still available everywhere and at no cost? That is correct. And, you know, early on, Nick, those were two of the the things that we heard loud and clear, were that, you know, the access has been limited, uh, and it was. It rolled out slowly during Ohio, and access, you know, it took a while. Uh, for things to become fully available. Um, but yes, it is available. It is at no cost. Uh, you can call us here at the Board of Health at 216-201-2041. You can email us at ccbhnurse at ccbh.net. Uh, you can call uh, your own medical provider. You can contact Walgreens, Marks, Rite Aid, all those different places. Um, you know, it's widely available. Yeah, we, can get, we can get those. Now, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health about COVID vaccinations and the current spread. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome 
Welcome back, Cleo. I'm Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. Uh, Kevin, as always, thank you for being with us. Uh, we were talking about uh, vaccinations and the fact that COVID is still with us. Uh, what are the state numbers? Well, statewide, what we see is that um, 53% of people across all age groups have completed two doses, uh, their first series at least. So when we break that down a little more, in the 5 to 11-year-old category, 56% of those eligible have received it. 12 to 17-year-olds, 62% have received it. And 18 and over, 64% have received it. So again, that makes for a statewide average of 53% in total. Here in Cuyahoga County, when we look at all the age groups put together, 58% of the eligible population has, has completed their two-dose series. So um, I think the thing that's a little troubling to us, Nick, is as we look at the pattern, we saw a, 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 an increase, obviously, in, beginning in January 2021 when vaccine first became available, and that increase just exponentially grew through May of this year. And then we leveled off a little bit in June and July, and then as we got into August to the present, we've really seen the numbers go down significantly, and we're sort of crawling along incrementally. Um, when we look at Ohio as a state, Ohio is 35th out of the 51 uh, areas that are mentioned. So there's 50 states, including uh, the District of Columbia. So the most highly vaccinated state is Vermont at 73%. Least vaccinated state is West Virginia at 42%. So you can see, uh, even though you know we, we've got 73% of people in Vermont, that's still not enough for us to be what we would consider uh, herd immunity, as you and I have discussed before, and we're certainly far from it here in Ohio and then all the way down to West Virginia at the bottom at 42%. There's always been some debate about what we've been hearing is natural immunity. People who have had their active infection with COVID, uh, does that count at all toward herd immunity and added to the vaccinated numbers? From what I understand, from what I've been told by the physicians that we interact with, is that natural immunity is helpful, but the immunity that you receive from the vaccine far exceeds that. So there really is no substitute at this point for the degree of immunity that you receive by um, receiving the vaccine. Uh, so that still is by, you know, very, uh, very firmly the recommendation of the medical people that we interact with is that, you know, the vaccine is by far the best choice in terms of, you know, um, keep making yourself as protected as possible. For people who have had COVID or think they've had it and have not been vaccinated, what should they do? Well, they're really in the same boat as, as anyone else who's not been vaccinated. As I just mentioned, you know, they do have a degree of immunity, but it wanes by the day. Uh, and then when you get, you know, several days out or several months out, you're really back at square one where everyone else is. So this thought that your body is perpetually fortified is really a myth. Um, you know, you've got to go and get the vaccine to have that high degree of protection. So this is not like uh, being a child and getting chicken pox once in your life. And That's you're true. Trying. That's true. That's true. And as we see, when you become an adult, you know, the recommendation when you get over a certain age is that you get the shingle shot, because even if you've had chicken pox, right, they want you to go and get the right. shingle shot because that, that's latent in your body and it's, you know, it's poised to rear its ugly head again. So 
you know, as I spoke about before, you know, no vaccine is 100% foolproof. So we've really got to be fluid as we go through life here and listen to the advice of the medical experts. Um, you know, it's, I think, as you and I have spoken about before, you know, it's, it's distressing for us in society to see the lack of regard for people who are authorities. Um, you know, we, we, one thing that we see quite often here at the Board of Health is people will come on and tell us, well, I saw this on Facebook or I saw this on Twitter or I did my own research. You know, that may be, but there is no substitute for the validity of the research and, and the information that comes from people who have been doing this for, you know, decades and decades and institutions that have been around forever that, you know, really are reliable sources of information. The uh, notion and the behavior of viruses are that they mutate. And we've been talking about the Delta variant, which, from what I understand, I think you mentioned is uh, sort of dominant here in, in Ohio right now. Uh, we've been hearing about Omicron, which is another variant. We've heard that it has a lot of variations to it, which makes it something of concern. Uh, how, how are things going here so far in Ohio? I don't think we have any cases yet. Yes, to the best of my knowledge, as we sit here right now, I have not been notified of a case here in Ohio. Uh, but I think we all know that it's just a matter of time. Um, what I can tell you is that we don't know a lot about Omicron at this point. Um, we're still waiting for a substantive um, body of evidence and, uh, and knowledge to be forthcoming from the CDC or uh, the World Health Organization as to, you know, letting us know a little bit more about what, what Omicron really is. Um, anecdotally, what I can tell you that we've heard is that sure. it potentially is more contagious, but um, the symptoms at this point in many people who've been documented with that variant, the symptoms have been mild. But again, that's very incomplete um, statement because we don't know the background of the people, you know, who have been affected. We don't know if they have comorbidities. We don't know the degree of transmission, obviously, in the areas where, where they have been. So this is all just very anecdotal at this point. So I would say our body of evidence or our body of knowledge is very incomplete at this point. Well, as you mentioned, still with comorbidities, we, we don't know whether or not the vaccinations uh, will do anything with regard to Omicron and whether or not the light symptoms are just part of the nature of the Omicron variant. We'll have to wait and see what, what happens on that. If it becomes necessary to have a new vaccine and to have people vaccinated again, what would the Board of Health's plans be for that, sort of same as they have been? Yes, what we would do is um, just to, to refresh people, we follow the lead of the Ohio Department of Health uh, and all of the state departments of health across the country follow the lead of the Centers for Disease Control. So once CDC, you know, decides uh, as to the necessity of that, should it arise, and, you know, the length of time it may take if, in fact, there is a need for a new vaccine, then we would just follow the schedule that, that they would administer to us. Um, but much like it has been now with the current COVID vaccine, eventually it will make its way into our hands, and then we'll certainly contribute to the effort to vaccinate people locally along with health systems and um, the retail outlets and, and everybody else who's been working on it thus far. Because Omicron looks like it's a matter of time before it spreads all over, including here in Ohio, are there any recommendations with regard to travel or public gatherings or masking other than what we talked about? 
I don't think so. Um, and, and I think, you know, when, when we talked a, a few minutes ago about the things that kind of trouble us here at the Board of Health, um, you know, to see that this holiday season, many people are feeling like it's back to normal time and I can just go on a plane and go anywhere and I can travel and I can gather with people. And, you know, if they're vaccinated or not, I'm not as concerned about it. I mean, as far as, you know, we're, we're, we're concerned here at the Board of Health, we still are, are, you know, raising the red flag of, you know, not gathering with people who are unvaccinated if you know that they're not, um, making sure that you're social distancing and wearing masks and, you know, minimizing travel and trying to stay within your bubble. I you remember very early on we talked about the bubble that you create by the people that you work right. with and the people family, right? We still recommend that people stay as close to, you know, residing within that bubble as we did several months ago. Do we have a prognostication for January as to where we're going to be or too early to tell? I would say it's too early to tell, but as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, this confluence of uh, the potential for flu to spread as more people relax their their mitigation efforts, meaning that, you know, less people are wearing masks. I can tell you anecdotally when I go out, you know, I feel like I'm in the minority now as a, as a person wearing a mask, uh, you know, as that continues and as we, you know, get indoors more and the weather gets colder. I mean, right now, what we're seeing, too, is we're seeing a lot of people just, um, again, anecdotally, people, you know, suffering with sinus infections and cold due to the, the variance in the weather. So we do have people whose immune systems are compromised right now just by normal, you know, seasonal activity. So when we throw COVID and flu on top of that, that can cause great concern for us. So I would say we're very cautious as we look towards January. I, I couldn't really say anything definitively at this point, but we certainly are cautious as we look forward. Well, as always, we really appreciate you sharing with us what's going on from the, the Board of Health standpoint, uh, the reputable, authoritative public health source here in Cuyahoga County, and uh, to dispel any of those uh, rumors and uh, those stories out there. So anyway, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight, and uh, we'll talk to you again in January. Very good, as always, Nick. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the air. My pleasure. I appreciate being able to share the word. So thank you so much, Kevin. That's Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and what it is, what it's doing, and what you can do to help, and why it's so important during these times. With us tonight is the Communications Director of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, is Karen Posnick. Karen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me today. The Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Uh, you know, we talked the other day, you and I, Mm-hmm. about, I think, what a typical impression of a food bank is. It's a spare room in the basement of a church mm-hmm. where there's a lot of canned goods stocked, mm-hmm. stocked up there, and, and that's it. If the people who are listening do not know about the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, you guys are quite a large operation, aren't you? Absolutely. You know, the, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, we um, 
serve over six counties here in Northeast Ohio. And uh, our operation, you know, we get donations from a variety of places, local retailers, manufacturers. Uh, we actually get support from the federal and state governments and then obviously individual donors as well. And um, with all of the donations that we get, both food and monetary donations, then we take that um, and, you know, use it to, to get food, to get to our partner agencies. And so we have over a thousand partner agencies that um, we partner with and they include soup kitchens and pantries and kids programs and um, senior programs throughout the area. Uh, and then they in turn get it to the clients who need it most. So it is quite an operation. If you've ever been out to our food bank, a lot of people would compare it to a, a Costco warehouse. Um, but uh, it is a pretty um, well-oiled machine and we work uh, you know not only with our staff but hundreds of volunteers on a regular basis to to uh, keep the operation running smoothly and it's a large facility it's out there on mm -hmm. the shoreway uh, yep. the Collinwood area uh, do you know about how many square feet you have it looks like a huge warehouse it is. It is. It's over uh, 128,000 square feet, so it is a pretty big operation. Um, we have over 150 employees. Uh, you know, that includes not only the office staff and um, fundraising and admin teams, but lots of um, folks in our operations that work in our warehouse. We have an on-site kitchen where we prepare meals um, for programs who, who don't have the the capability to prepare meals at their own site. And we have a fleet of trucks. We have almost 20 trucks now in our fleet. And those trucks will take the deliveries of food to our partner agencies. Um, that is the majority of, of what they do. And then in addition to that, they will also pick up donations from um, large donors like local retailers. Is there a way you quantify how much food you put out every day, every week, every month? Well, last year we distributed just over 53 million pounds of food. Um, and I will say, you know, on average, we, it's, we, we have a few million pounds of food, I would say, at any given time. It turns over pretty quickly. I would say within every two to three weeks, we turn over the product, um, some quicker than others. Uh, not only do we have shelf-stable items that we get out and we distribute, but we also do a lot of perishable items like fresh produce and um, milk and, and protein. And um, and so it is it is a variety of products. And, and like I said, we work to make sure that we get it out as quickly as possible. We, we always hear people donating to the food bank, but mm -hmm. at the size of the operation you have, uh, you have to go out and buy things like milk and produce, don't you? And, and how Absolutely. does that work? Sure. So that is where the monetary donations are so important because um, there are certain items that we always want to make sure that we have on hand. Uh, and so one of the ways that we are so efficient is because we have such buying power. We buy things in such large quantities. Um, and we like to make sure that we have certain types of um, food always on hand and make sure that that food is nutritious food too. You know, we, we are trying to follow the trends um, that you see in a lot of grocery stores. So we have been trying to make sure that we are providing, you know, brown rice or whole grain pasta um, to, to clients so that they can have you know, not only the food that they need, but nutritious food to keep a healthy diet. Um, also for kids programs, you know, a lot of times we, we have a program, our Backpack for Kids program, where we'll put um, kid-friendly food in, in bags 
and we'll send them out to different schools or after-school programs throughout the area, and um, the kids will take those bags home over the weekend. Well, if you know anything about kids, they like to <laughs> compare and look pizza. at food. So, well, yeah, and but we want to make sure that, like, all of the product is the same in the bags, and they're kid-friendly food. So, um so that when they do take it home, we know that they'll eat it and they'll enjoy it. Um, and, and you know, we don't want them, like, swapping out food or anything like that. Everybody has the same thing, and it's all even. And so that's where one area we have to make sure that, that um, we tend to purchase that product so that we know we have exactly what we need. When you're going out purchasing and procuring products out on the market, mm-hmm. you're buying this stuff at wholesale, do you get any special discount or additional discounts for being such a benevolent organization like the food bank? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have a couple of people on staff who that is what they do. They um, they work with different vendors and they get the different pricing. And, of course, they're always looking for the best deal. And so I think um, – they definitely build up those good relationships with the different vendors. And, um, you know, it's always looking for, for what the best best bang for your buck is. And I think that um, some of the vendors can be very generous and very helpful um, in, in the product that they provide for us. And so uh, it's great, you know, like I said, to have these folks on staff who work with them regularly and build those relationships. And inevitably, I think that helps to pay off um, in the long run and when when we're buying that product and making sure that we get, get the best price. We've been hearing about rising food costs and supply mm-hmm. chain delays and things like that. How much pressure does that put on, on you guys in procuring the fresh yeah. food you need? We've been watching it a lot over the last several months, and, you know, we've been watching the news, obviously, like everybody else, and hearing it in the news, and trying to prepare and plan as much as we can in advance um, to make sure that we have the product uh, that we need, that we always like to have in stock. And so, um, like, one example is, you know, with the turkeys, um, we've been hearing for months that there might be a shortage of turkeys. So we actually purchased the turkeys that we distributed um, in the fall, we actually purchased them last spring. And uh, so we had to do that months in advance. So we made sure we distributed over 6,000 turkeys this holiday season, which is pretty incredible. Um, The price did increase. We had to pay, I think, upwards of 20% more. Um, But we made sure that we had those turkeys in stock because one thing we want to make sure, too, is, um, you know, during the busy holiday season, we do see the need increase, and, and we want to make sure that everybody has a holiday meal. Um, another example uh, is, you know, canned uh, canned vegetables and, like, canned green beans, for example. Uh, two years ago, I we were paying yeah, $9 a case for the canned green beans. Um, this year, we were paying upwards of $19 a case. Uh, and part of that is because wow. of the supply chain issues and, um, you know, the increase in, in cost for the packaging, um, the the actual materials that the cans are made out of. And so, you know, that is where the donations of folks in the community are so important because they're helping us offset these additional costs. Have the uh, economic pressures on, on the higher cost of foods, has that uh, lowered the amount of food that you're actually distributing? Um, it is not. We, like I said, we're very fortunate. We we live in a very generous community, and so we, you know, 
the need is still there. And so we need to make sure that we have enough food um, to be able to meet that need. And so, like I said, we've just been very planful. We've ordered things much further in advance because, you know, some things are taking much longer to get in. Um, if there is something that's not available, then we try and find uh, a replacement for it. Um, so, you know, kudos to our staff who have been working on that because there's been definitely some some juggling and rearranging and things like that. But, um, you know, the last thing we want is for anyone to not have the food they need. And so we're, we're pretty focused on making sure that, um, that we get that food in somehow, some way, and that we get that food out to the community. Well, it's quite an important mission that you have. It's, mm-hmm. And it's a powerful presence to keep uh, moving along at, at this volume of food that you're bringing in and you're putting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're talking to Karen Posner from the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. We're talking about the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and what they've been doing here in Cleveland and in the surrounding counties. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Karen to talk more about the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and uh, the kind of food they're, they're providing out there to, uh, I guess, for all of us if we ever needed it. We'll talk about who's entitled to it and where they distribute it when we get back. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHA, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. And tonight we're taking a look into the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. And we're talking to Karen Posner from the uh, Food Bank to tell us how they've been operating and how they're doing during the uh, the pandemic. You know, uh, Karen, again, thank you mm-hmm. for being with us. Thanks so much for and, having uh, me today. Oh, my, my pleasure. We, we need to know. When I drive by the food bank there on the shoreway, I drive by and I think of you, and I think of all the work you guys do out there. But uh, as we all know, 2020 was the pandemic year. That For most of us, many things didn't happen. Uh, How did uh, the food bank deal with the pandemic crisis? That really was a crisis. And uh, with, I assume, more people needing food. Absolutely. You know, when um, the pandemic hit and the state of Ohio shut down in, in March of 2020, um, we really had to kick it into high gear. Um, there were, you know, so many businesses that had shut down. And if there was one thing that I had learned um, during those first few months of the pandemic is how many people lived paycheck to paycheck. And once their job shut down for whatever reason or they were furloughed, um, it became very apparent how quickly they were in need. Uh, and the food bank, you know, we we were there, you know, we were considered essential workers. And so we kicked it into high gear, really um, had to pivot quickly, think creatively. And um, we also had to think about how to be able to still distribute the food um, to folks in need uh, in a safe way. Because at that time, I mean, people still didn't know what exactly was happening and how this virus was spreading and everything. And so um, we adapted to a drive-through distribution method. um, And we had done actually a distribution at 
the food bank right at the start of the pandemic, and we were pretty overwhelmed pretty quickly, and we clogged up our neighborhood, and um, I don't think our neighbors were all that happy with us that day, um, and so we knew we, we needed an, a different solution, uh, and so fortunately, we worked closely with the city of Cleveland and uh, the Cleveland Police Department, and at that point, too, um, the governor had... Uh, called in the National Guard to all of the food banks as well. So we had up to 60 to 70 National Guard every day at the food bank, helping pack food, helping prepare meals, and helping with the logistics of how to figure out how to do these food distributions. So we actually... um, started doing drive-through distributions at the city of Cleveland Muni lot in downtown Cleveland every Thursday. I recall seeing that on the news. Yeah. yeah. And we would do day. upwards of, you know, 2,000 to 2,500 cars every week. Uh, and we continue to do that now. Um, it, I, in the Are the summer, numbers still I think, up there? Uh, yeah, actually, this past summer, the numbers did dip a bit. And I think part of that is thanks to, um, you know, some of the the government benefits that have kicked in during the pandemic. Um, But I think, you know, as a result of rising food costs and some of these um, programs starting to run out, um, we have seen a spike within the last month or I would say four to six weeks. So we're averaging, again, about 2,000 cars every week still coming through the muni lot. And like the week before Thanksgiving, when we were down there, we did over 4,000 cars. Um, and when I say cars, you know, that's essentially households. It averages, you know, two to three people in every household. So that's, you know, another nine to 12,000 people every week that we're still serving. Um, and if that need is still there, we're going to continue to be there as, as long as possible. Um, now, of course, that's just one way that people are getting food. And we've, you know, been able to manage that that distribution, thanks to the help of the National Guard for so long. And then once they transitioned Is the out, National Guard still out? Oh, they're gone. National yeah, Guard. they left in July. And so um, fortunately, you know, we've had some really amazing dedicated volunteers. Um, and, you know, again, we've really worked hard to make sure we do it in a safe and efficient manner. Um, it's really... The drive-through is great because people have to pre-register on a website. Um, they get a code that they can just show and hold up in the window. We have volunteers type in their number um, and, and register them and confirm, you know, that they're there. And then they pull up to another spot and they can pop open their trunk and we put the food into their trunk and then they're on their way. So there's really no contact, um, and I think because it's been outside, obviously, um, volunteers do feel comfortable coming down there. Um, although in the past few months, too, we've we've opened up our, our building back to volunteers as well to have them come in since the Guard isn't here anymore. But again, we've worked really hard to make sure we try and keep it a safe environment. You know, we still do temperature checks. We still sure, require sure. folks to wear masks. Um, and try and socially distance as much as possible um, because we, we really need the help of those volunteers. We couldn't do what we do without them. No, uh, that, that, that is true. A question for people who are listening tonight yep. uh, and, and wondering, uh, they're not sure whether they're entitled to get mm-hmm. some food from the food bank or to register online. Mm-hmm. Are, are there certain qualifications? And I say that because I remember when we were seeing this on TV, mm-hmm. um, the... I don't mean to sound demeaning or anything, but people look like normal people, people you wouldn't expect to see in a food line. Right, right. And I think, you know... um, How do they do that? 
It's really a self-declaration of need, um, and we have a help center on on site here where if folks are wondering if they're eligible or if they're in need, they can call our help center. Um, that phone number is 216-738-2067, uh, and they can call that number for help. They can find out if they're eligible. Um, they can find out where the nearest food pantry is to them. They can find out if they're eligible for additional benefits like SNAP or heating assistance, especially in the wintertime. Um, but really, it is, it's a very short form that they fill out, um, and it really is a self-declaration of need. There are some income guidelines that are recommended. Um, but, you know, when you look at those lines at the Muni lot every week, um, and, and inevitably, even though people have to pre-register, they come down and they still arrive hours early. And to think that these folks are sitting in line for hours waiting for a box of food is pretty humbling, you know. Um, and I think, too, that it speaks to the fact of, you know, what I was saying earlier, how people live paycheck to paycheck. Um, there right, are a right. lot of people out there. and. You know, one thing could set them into a stale, into a tailspin, whether that's you know a, a medical emergency or you know their car breaks down and they lose transportation and they can't get into work for a few days. Um, a lot of the the people that come through, they just need a, a temporary fix just to help them get by for you know a few weeks or a few months. Um, and so, you know, that's why we're there. Such a precious asset that we have here. Right mm-hmm. here in Cleveland, and uh, you know, for the um, for the for the people who want to help, how can they help? And I, I assume it is uh, does the food bank have a charitable element to it, or like a five hundred one c three they call it? Yes, where people absolutely. can make tax deductible donations. Yep. Tell us about that. Sure. So yes, the the Greater Cleveland Food Bank is a nonprofit. Um, there's you know a couple different ways that people can help. Um, we do obviously accept monetary donations. Uh, one of the easiest ways to give is to go to our website at www.greatercleavelandfoodbank.org, um, and there's you know information on how to donate uh, right there on the homepage. You can click the donate button. Um, you can also volunteer. We do need volunteers year-round, uh, and they help with a variety of projects, whether it's you know repacking donated food that we receive or preparing meals in our on-site kitchen um, or helping down at our muni lot every week. We're going to continue those into the new year. Uh, so there's definitely opportunities to get involved. Um, you can even host a food and funds drive um, at your own, you know, org- organization or company that you work at or a lot of the schools too also host food and funds drives so um, we encourage folks to get involved and help out well it sounds do you, do you anticipate um, the need to continue or do you see any light at the end of the tunnel or any decrease in demand or we're uh, just holding our own now and continuing I, I, I would say right now Watching we're holding ahead. our own you know I can't say that I would have thought we would have still been here a year and a half into the pandemic. Um, I, I was pretty hopeful and optimistic that things were going to get better, and um, here we are, like I said, a year and a half later, and um, and the need is still high. I think food costs have definitely um, impacted folks. Um, there are some, you know, federal benefits that have been a result of, of the pandemic to help families out. Um, some of those are expected to end at the end of the year. Uh, and so as we head into the new year, you know, we can just plan as right, much as right. we can and, um, and 
hope that things will get better, but we'll be here for, for folks. I mean, food is a basic need. So we want to make sure they is. have that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank everyone down there for the fine work they do and being such a strong, robust asset here for the people of Cleveland and, and vicinity. So thank you so much, Karen, and good luck. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Stay safe and healthy. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. And only my mind for company. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.